This is the third, isn't it? Third this is bar. the third. St. Paul's Theological Centre Godfold Recordings, and uh, this is Graham Tomlin here, and um, we have our usual suspects here. Good morning, Mike. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jane. Good morning. And uh, we also have a very special guest this morning, and we are hugely privileged because we have um, um, one of the world's great experts in uh, Thomas Cranmer. We don't have Thomas Cranmer, we, we just have no, an, an expert on Cranmer. He's slightly yeah. dead. <laughs> um, no, but we do have uh, Dr. Ashley Null who is um, uh, an old friend from some time back and uh, who knows rather a lot about Cranmer. So, um, so Ashley's come to join us and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Cranmer but we also might talk about some other things and get his pearls of wisdom on other questions that have been emailed through. So, um, yeah, so we're going to just uh, work our way through a number of questions today and um, we might touch on some weird religious stuff at some point. But, um, well, Ashley, welcome. It's good to be here. Very good. Um, as you can tell, Ashley's not from these parts. Of the <laughs> um, he comes from some strange island on the other side of the Atlantic. A little bit west of Cornwall. A little bit west of Cornwall, yeah. But he actually lives in Berlin, doesn't he? Yes, I do. Why do you live in Berlin? I have a visiting research uh, fellowship there because I'm looking at the influence of the German Reformation, particularly its understanding of the Bible on Cranmer and the English Reformation. Okay. I suppose it's just possible there are people who don't know who Cranmer is, aren't there? Do you think we should ask Ashley to tell us a bit about Cranmer? Go on, tell us. Give a potted, potted biography of Cab Cranmer in one minute. <laughs> Without hesitation, <laughs> deviation or repetition. <laughs> That's right. I'm born in uh, 1489, dies in 1556. He's best known for being the Archbishop of Canterbury under Henry VIII and Edward VI and was, one might say, the theological architect or the founding formularies of the Church of England. So he had a large hand in shaping the official theological positions of the church under Edward VI, which, although with some slight modifications, was basically taken over in the Elizabethan church, and therefore, through, especially through his prayer book, has had a continuing influence on the piety mm. and um, the sense of of combining biblical theology with reverent worship that has become the hallmark of Anglicanism. As you can tell by going into any Anglican church anywhere. You can so when we think about prayer book, 1661, well, 1662, because that was, 1662 was after he died, but, but the origins of that prayer book is all down to Cranmer, aren't they? Indeed. How, how, I mean, how much is it true that he wrote it? I mean, that's an overstatement, isn't it? But, but how much input did he have in the thing? There's a room in my house where he wrote it, so I hope it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good, isn't it? Not only do we have one of the world's experts in Cranmer, we also have the person who lives in Cranmer's house. <laughs> Which is pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think um, it all depends what you mean by write. Perhaps a better word is edit and translation. One of the things that Cranmer had a true gift for was English language mm. and expression. And he was uh, a thoroughgoing scholar of his day, read everything, recorded much of what he wrote. Um, and Godpod recording? Something like that. The equivalent, he had yeah. secretaries writing down his notes from his books. He would read and read and mark them and have a secretary as a... Sounds very good idea. I think, yes, we should have really one of those. Perhaps all of you have profound enough thoughts to deserve <laughs> a secretary <laughs> following you around. I'm sure I do. <laughs> we rely on Mike for the profound thoughts. <laughs> 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 Shows how hard up we are. <laughs> 
So between reading other people's works and then being able to translate things well into a good, memorable English, um, he created. Uh, he was the overseer of much of the of the work. Even when Henry VIII commented on an earlier revision of the doctrine of the Church called the Bishops Book, put together by the bishops, uh, Cranmer corrected the, the king's grammar. And, um, and lived. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You can see very much a, a pedantic, not pedantic, but exacting Cambridge dawn. Yes. And it's that kind of uh, attention to linguistic detail comes through in the beauty of the prayer books mm. that he oversaw. But equally, he was a, a, a gifted pastoral theologian, and his insight into the human um, composition what makes people tick and his understanding of biblical theology the answer to the cries of the human heart made sure that when he edited translated and shaped the liturgy he did it according to the uh, uh, central uh, reformation principles of grace and gratitude Mm -hmm. which we can talk about at length but I'll give you a chance to answer a question (laughs) ask a question so tell us a bit about Cranmer's relationship with the different kings and queens that were around during his life? Henry VIII um, uh, is responsible for him becoming Archbishop of Canterbury in 1533. He serves throughout Henry's reign. Uh, Henry uh, is willing to further uh, the role of the Bible in the church as an alternative to papal power because, of course, Henry... uh, becomes head of the church and removes England from under the Pope's jurisdiction but uh, the Pope, but Henry never accepts Cranmer's Protestant theology and he creates his, Henry creates a sort of a something in between Catholic and Protestantism that is particularly his own idiosyncratic interests. Under Edward, sorry. So he then dies and Edward VI becomes In 1547 Henry VIII dies and his nine year old son Edward VI becomes king and he's surrounded by a group of Protestant uh, committed Protestant sympathizers and under Edward Cramner is able to begin to create a Protestant blueprint for the Church of England. In 1547, he introduces a book of homilies where uh, justification by faith and the centrality of Scripture is taught. In 1549, he introduces his first prayer book, which he then makes progressively more Protestant in 1552. And then lastly, in 1553, he brings out something called the 42 Articles, which will eventually become the 39 Articles under Elizabeth. Edward dies dies in 15. Mary becomes queen? Well, before that, there's this little Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes, you get your nine days queen. Yes, that uh, Edward is very concerned that his heir is uh, his half-sister Mary, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, a very staunch Roman Catholic. And therefore, he convinces Cramner against Cramner's uh, best judgment, but in deference to the king, to support Lady Jane Grey as uh, the heir to Edward. Um... Uh, Lady Jane Grey is proclaimed queen, but for some reason, probably because the king dies quicker than they think, uh, Mary is not in captivity, and she raises troops, and she's clearly the popular choice, and all of a sudden, Mary is proclaimed queen, and Cramner is a traitor, Hmm. and he gets into trouble, and Mm -hmm. there's... Mary... uh, 
the in September of 1553, there's rumors that Cramner is supporting a return to the Mass in his cathedral. He clearly says he's not. This gets him in even deeper trouble. He's arrested in 1553, and over the course of the next two and a half years, he is progressively isolated and eventually in March 21st, 1556, he's burned at the stake in Oxford. So coming up to an anniversary here. Exactly. Where are we? It's the 16th of March as we speak, because you know when you're listening. Next next week, the Archbishop of Canterbury is giving a sermon in Oxford for the 450th anniversary of Mm. Cranmer's martyrdom. And of course, towards the end of of Cranmer's life, there's this great, when he's in prison, he um, he goes under. He recants his earlier Protestantism, and then he starts out very strong, that. but little by little yeah. through isolation. And Cranmer himself says, through concern about death, he had to watch Latimer and Ridley uh, die. Latimer mercifully died very quickly. Ridley, the executioner, wasn't very good in building the fire, so it was slow burning and smoldering. So that he wasn't a man of burning ambition, was he? I'm sorry, Kate. Lower the tone of this fight. <laughs> Ridley, Ridley's torso uh, survived, though his legs were burned off, and he was conscious and screaming to agony. And Cramner was forced. And to they watch, made him watch, didn't they, from watches. the walls of Oxford? That's yeah. right. Yep. So that had a unsettling effect on Cramner. As it might do. And uh, yeah. he, he he begins. Uh, um, the few months before his death, to begin to sign recantations. The first ones are of the are of the nature. If I ever did anything wrong against the Bible, I'm sorry, which doesn't give away. Quite cut it from right. the opponents. But uh, once it's uh, clear that they're going to burn him, he does sign a fifth recantation. That is a real recantation, um, and this is probably, uh, as he said, of a fear of death. All his appeals have not worked. But then on March 18th, when it's clear that he will not be given a repeat, because usually when you sign a recantation, you are burned. That was very common under, under Henry. But it's clear that he's going to be burned. He then signs a sixth, even more abject um, recantation, showing that he that the scholarly arguments of the people who've been put to him have begun to really make him doubt that perhaps he really was wrong. But then, um, uh, right before, he's supposed to have a wonderful set piece for the government to, in public, denounce what he has done. Um, He has a change of heart and realizes that the truth of God's unmerited grace can save even someone who has been the chief promoter, who has now become the chief critic, can actually return and die in the faith that had nurtured him. Yeah, Thomas Cranmer was, of course, one of the um, architects of the Book of Common Prayer that we all know about. He served on, as Archbishop of Canterbury under uh, Henry VIII, had a bit of a stormy relationship there, um, was very influential under Edward VI, the king after Henry, Edward, uh, Henry's son, of course, um, and then after a little episode with the Nine Days Queen, Lady Jane Grey, of course, Queen Mary comes to the throne, who is Catholic, and returns England to Catholicism, which, of course, is a bit of a problem for Cranmer because he is Protestant. And, of course, towards the, the story of the end of Cranmer's life is, is maybe quite well known. But um, 
he uh, he is pressurized by Mary and Mary's bishops to recant and go back on all his Protestant principles from before. And um, with the onset of, of death coming up and with his actually having to watch his friends Ridley and Latimer die in complete agony from the uh, crime was made to watch this from the, from the walls of, of Oxford. Um, he actually signs a recantation of his Protestant faith. Um, but su- surprisingly, Mary doesn't accept that. He's, and he says, well, he has to die anyway because of what he's done. And then right at the last minute, um, when he gets up to give this speech to supposedly um, recant his Protestant beliefs, he actually comes in this amazing sort of um, turnaround where he, he says, no, I don't recant at all. What I've said is right and true and godly and there's this moment where he actually, when he's uh, being burned at the stake, he thrusts his, the hand that signed the recantation into the fire, first of all. And uh, so he dies at the stake in Oxford um, under Mary's reign. It'd be, it'd be good to get, I mean, to, to talk a little bit about the theme of Cranmer and the love of God and the motivation for Christian behaviour, because I guess that's what the book focuses on, doesn't it? And, and um, I mean, you've written a very good book, may I say so. Um, very kind. And... Um, from a fellow Reformation historian. Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, what, what are the things that drives Cranmer's um, liturgy, theology, and approach to, to Christian life for you? What are the things, the kind of key themes that are there? And I suppose particularly, you know, with a view to to the living of Christian life today. You know, people, and, and I mean, you know, what, what is there that Cranmer's got to teach us? If I would sum up um, one major contribution of Cramner to pastoral care for today, is that the question? Yeah, that'll do. That's fine. <laughs> Cramner was convinced that guilt, fear, shame, duty, pride have no power to enable you to say no to sin. Coming out of the middle, medieval English um, Uh, traditional piety uh, following Augustine desiring God, wanting to love God how do you enable people to love God because the only thing that gives you the power to say no to sin is not shame, duty, fear, guilt, pride it's love, loving God more than sin so how in the world do you so fall in love with God that you're able to actually have your heart changed so that you begin to act differently as a result he's a protestant not because he believes in a cold uh, atonement justification in the sky bank account that doesn't change people he wants to know how does what God promises in scripture work to enable them to love so that they can live as a Christian should live and his anthropology uh, comes from uh, Luther and Melanchthon and to use words that aren't his but I do think accurately summarizes what he believes for him what the heart loves the will chooses and the mind justifies Jane when you got married you, you looked at your husband and you thought hmm let's look at the bank accounts let's see the pedigree let's look at the let's I need to get a merchant an acquisition analyst in here to advise me on this is that the way it worked absolutely <laughs> but actually what you've just said I, I nearly burst into tears while you were saying it actually I find it's 
reconverting, just hearing such a, a, a way of talking about about what Christian life is. It's wonderfully moving, in fact. Oh, it is. I think something that's. I mean, there's all there's all the stuff around the Reformation, which is not terribly pleasant and interactive, but um, but the, I think one of the absolute core insights, and I think it's in it's there in Cranmer, it's there in in, in Luther in particular, is this thing that you know the, the love of God. It starts with love rather than fear, or or it, it starts with God's love for us rather than our trying to love God somehow in, a, in some other uninitiated um, way. Mm-hmm. Our love for God starts with God's love for us. Right. Medieval penance basically uh, used two millstones. That's their their language to crush the heart to birth love, mm-hmm. and that was the hope of salvation and the fear of damnation. And that both had to be held because if you only had fear, you would fall into despair. If you only had hope, you would fall into pride. But if you used both, and the church preached both, you would then have the motivation to work really, really hard to love God. And Cranmer says, well, that's a great idea, but it doesn't work pastorally. It either produces pride or it produces despair, but it can't produce love. Only one thing can produce love, and that is the knowledge that you're loved unconditionally. He lands on justification by faith because it under it cuts out all this notion of merit that I must do something to become pleasing to God. Um, Gardner will even use phrases, Stephen Gardner, Kramer's chief uh, conservative theological opponent, that we, we have to earn being loved by God. And for Cramner, well, then it's not love if it's earned. And we can't do it anyway, can we? Exactly. <laughs> and and no, in no human relationship can you earn love. It's, it's always gift, isn't it? Um, it's a mutual gift. The other thing that's so moving then about it, Ashley, is that that's a wonderful theory, and Cramer had to live it in the middle of a highly political court with shame, guilt, fear and pride all around him how did it, I mean how, he must have had enormous personal strain in preaching such a word and then living such a different kind of life well the problem is that he didn't live such another kind of life <laughs> which really put him at odds in the court he uh, um, in Henry VIII by Shakespeare uh, Stephen Gardner says of Cramner, words and weakness, mm. words and weakness, because he was notorious for pardoning his enemies the minute they made a confession and then rewarding them. One of the chief architects of a plot in 1543 that almost brings about Cramner's destruction what does Cranmer do two years later? He makes him his suffragan bishop in Canterbury. When his secretary asks him, why in the world do you do this? He says, how else are we going to make clear that God loves us, not based on us, but on his own bountiful goodness? For Cramner, forgiving your enemies is actually the best way to proclaim an evangelical gospel. And he did it when, in a world in which the consequences of such things are, were astounding. And, and did it have an effect on the, 
Suffragan Bishop of Canterbury? No, he was actually the first person to set up the Mass once again um, when Mary <laughs> comes to the throne <laughs> without Cranmer's permission. And the, the irony of that is that it's kind of not what Cranmer himself received towards the end of his life, didn't he? Because when he, I mean, I guess with the story of, of his own death, and I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, you know, Cranmer's own turmoil coming up to his own trial and his, his own death. But I suppose when, you know, when he... Um, recants of his sort of Protestantism under pressure with, with Queen Mary she still does not pardon him and still sends him to the, to the stake and then of course the last minute he goes back and he, he, he earns everything that he's always said isn't that right? So he, he, he doesn't receive the mercy that he extends to other people does he? In his story. I think it's a fair statement especially if you get to know bishops that power magnifies weakness because you can see in others when they make decisions that affect you their own blind spots mm-hmm. and nothing shows the thorough humanness of Cramner than his last days where as the leading proponent of the gospel he becomes the most desired scalp for showing that uh, it was all a big mistake in the beginning, when he's in prison, he writes a letter to uh, Queen Mary in which he basically uh, defends everything he's done and calls the Pope Antichrist. This is not a weak man who, in prison, is uh, doing so. But yet you also get the sense that he's doing so because he, he knows where he's headed and he's fighting for his life at the same time he's fighting for his principles. He's shocked by the way he's treated, both in his the disputation in Oxford uh, on the Eucharist and then in his trial because he assumes that people will play fair. That, will, that he, He's a scholar and he believes, he's a humanist scholar, he believes that truth and debate will bring will come out in the course if people are honest and to his to his heart it begins to dawn on him that actually these are show trials. Mm-hmm. It's not about seeking the truth, but the truth has already been decided and that's a world in which he doesn't know how to operate. Mm-hmm. And he writes and he complains, he says, You should treat me as you would wish to be treated if you were in my place. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't understand that well actually they're not in his place. <laughs> and that uh, uh, his gentleness and loving of his enemies and treating them well is not reciprocated mm. and um, but I guess there's no guarantee in the Christian life that's going to happen anyway is it I mean we don't I suppose we don't treat our enemies we're not called to treat our enemies well so that they treat us well no um, well that's the whole point is that they're not treating you well that's why yeah. they're, your en- they're your enemies yes. yeah and, and that, that only so is it a reflection of the unconditional love of God yeah. who doesn't love us who loves us regardless of whether we respond to that or not. Yeah. I think what Cramner finds so difficult is that in many ways what happens in the English Reformation is that the battle is bought by the thought over who shows real charity. Because everyone agrees that charity has to be a gift from the Holy Spirit. So if your theology is producing in you real charity, then you must be genuine. So Cramner thinks he, because the people who are mistreating him are church officials. He's, you know, he's appealing to what he thinks is a common basis. 
and discovering, well, actually, um, they don't see it that way. They see him as a cancer that has to be cut out and therefore deserves no mercy. And he's not given any. Actually, that's great. Um, I've got one more question about Cranmer. Um, I guess, as, as you say, we, we, um, we associate Cranmer with the 1662 prayer book, which is enshrined in most parish churches in 8 o'clock communions, <laughs> with about 20 people there. And um, I guess, you know, you go to a church like this one here, Holy Trinity Bompton, where actually you know, crowds of people turn up for worship that's driven by it the band and guitars and I don't expect there were too many bass guitars around at the time of the um, prayer book that Cranmer wrote now I, so I suppose this question I'm going to, do you feel that Cranmer's uh, if, if you're thinking about sort of worship today um, and you were talking to okay, say worship leaders in contemporary churches would you as a kind of someone who knows a lot about Cranmer would you want to kind of say to them well no no we go back to 1662 and we go back to sort of saying the language of Cranmer and we, we use that central structure or are there ways in which some of the kind of liturgical and and, and um, uh, worshipping principles of, of, of Cranmer's approach can be woven into more contemporary styles of worship today well, I think the first one has to say that since he gets rid of the Latin mass to make something that's in the language of the people, that he himself would not be a fan of 1662 language. Mm-hmm. Is a beatling per se. Uh, he would want something beautiful and effective and worshipable, but he wouldn't people have to acquire a taste for Elizabethan English in order to get to know Jesus Christ. Oh. <laughs> but I would have thought that the deeper principles we are in danger of losing, which is that for Cramner, what is the font of the Holy Spirit? Probably his most radical notion was that the Holy Spirit doesn't, apostolic succession, the Holy Spirit doesn't come down through the laying on of hands of bishops who then give it to priests who then are vehicles for the Holy Spirit to go through to the people through the sacraments. For him, the font of the Holy Spirit is the Bible. And that when the Bible is prayed, when it is sung, when it's proclaimed, then God takes the promises of Scripture and supernaturally writes them on our heart. That's the heart transplant that Ezekiel talks about. That's what changes the affections. You fall in love with God because His Spirit seals in your heart the promise that He loves you unconditionally. And from that comes a changed life. And so often what we have in evangelical circles is a proclamation of God's word as if it were law and not promise. That the reason is the same as the Holy Spirit. It says this is what you should do. Therefore, you must use your reason and your will to conform yourself to what the Bible says. For Cranmer, that's, that's what he's rejecting. The only thing that can happen is you take God's promises of what he says he's at work in you to be. Take First Corinthians, the preamble where he calls the Corinthians holy, and then you see what they're like. For Cramner, you bring the reality of the brokenness of your life with the reality of the promises, and then you ask God to do what you cannot do, which is to line them up. And the more that you meditate on his promise of what his handiwork will be in you, the more actually he uses that encounter with the word. So, yeah. so worship choruses. Yeah. 
that are biblical truths have power, not particularly because they match today's contemporary music, but because today's contemporary music clearly conveys the truth of God's Word, and the Holy Spirit can enter into that in people's praises and in their hearts. It is what strikes you, I think, about Cranmer's liturgy, that it's so, I mean, the whole thing is it's just scripture, really, even, the, even the, mm-hmm. the canticles are just basically bits of scripture sung. But scripture in worship. I mean, yeah. I think he's making yeah. worship one of the basic definitions of how to be a Christian. You don't do anything yeah. out mm. of any other motivation apart from mm. the Holy Spirit praying mm. in you and bringing the word alive in you as a worshipping yeah, human sure. being. And and I suppose that, that thing about I mean, contemporary worship can, well, it can or it can't, um, use scripture as, its, you know, as, as the content of what it says. And but there are a lot of worship songs that you do sometimes feel a little bit sort of banal and meaningless and don't really convey anything much of the promise of scripture and some that some that do in a very kind of profound way and I, I guess that's one of the things that Cranmer does for us is he, he reminds us of the power of scripture as something which which feeds us it's a wonderful phrase that Cranmer in the preface to the great bible isn't it that says you know that in the scriptures be the fat pastures of the soul yes. and uh, the holy relic on earth yeah that's right I mean, fat pastures I like fat pastures as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like fat pastures too that's really good because I'm becoming one myself <laughs> <laughs> no that's a fat, fat pasture <laughs> exactly but, um, but uh, yeah can I, uh, can yeah, I let yeah. one of the bees out of my bonnet just to buzz around only one please (laughs) but it seems to me that that one of the problems about the use of scripture in modern worship is that it's a very narrow bit of of the emotional range particularly the Psalms Um, we we, we use the nice bits of the Psalms we don't use the difficult and Mm. the the ragged and the kind of intense and the difficult God you've given me great adversities (laughs) well exactly (laughs) we there are not many contemporary songs that do lament or do protest or do anger anger, and yet that's part of who we are in our everyday lives and existences and to express it before God what he does with it is his business (laughs) but but actually get it out of ourselves before God is a healing mm. and transforming thing mm. um, and we don't do it very much in modern worship whereas mm. you know <coughs> the whole Psalter would be read every month uh, as part of the, mm. the, the worship of the church um, so you get the whole range that the Psalter gives you of course he was being fairly kind of light in that because the monasteries would do it every week so once a month you know, it's pretty it's easy perhaps we should ask God pod listeners to attempt to write us some biblical psalms of yeah, lament right. and, yeah. and, and anger and protest bringing the brokenness of life charismatic worship can run the risk of creating the impression that once you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, whatever that means in one's life, because I find I need to be fuller every day. But when one has a conscious sense of the Holy Spirit working in your life, especially from the American context, that means that you're walking victorious. Mm-hmm. And if there's something in your life that doesn't line up with that, then it's your fault and it's your work. Mm-hmm to either suppress it, run from it, or work very hard to change it. But the whole point of of the Reformation is that you bring that brokenness to God in worship. Morning and evening prayer, he wants to change a whole country. 
by getting a whole country under the spigot of the Holy Spirit by having them hear God's word in a context of praying about it, responding to it, living it out in a community, in the reality of the raggedness of life as it is now and not in some kind of pie in, in the sky thing that doesn't line up yeah. with the people's actual experience. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that people see about the church is that they see us as hypocrites because we say we're you know, saved and transformed and we're clearly not. <laughs> um, so actually, if we were a bit more honest in our worship about bringing the people that we really are, um, and laying them before the Holy Spirit, we might yeah. actually yeah. be a bit more convincing as Christians. <laughs> and these forms of worship that enable us to express the whole range of human emotions, which actually the Psalms do. I mean, the vast mm. range of the Psalms is actually are precisely about sort of complaining to God because he hasn't done what he's meant to have mm. done and, and, and that he's left us in the pits and crying out to God from that place. And, and also honest testimony mm. that, yeah. that, that doesn't say <coughs> everything was just awful and they're making him a Christian and everything is now great. Mm. That, that there's actually honestly yeah. sharing with one mm. another the, the struggle. Um, not, not to say <coughs> you know, one has yeah. to be downbeat or depressing or whatever, but, mm. but just basically honesty mm. about that. There is a real leavening of the Spirit in our lives. In God makes a difference. But we live in between the promise and its fulfillment. As Paul says, painful tension. There are moments of tender mercies. And being stunned at God's uh, tender care. And then there's moments like, David, you say, God, you have given me great adversities. I don't know why, but I will hold on that you will see it. I work with professional athletes, and what is amazing about them is that their lives go from huge, huge highs to real, real lows. Being the hero of the country one day, two weeks later, the papers are saying, you are the national embarrassment. And living in that kind of emotional range, the reality that perhaps it's not because you've done something wrong, but that's the normal Christian life, and what God promises that you're not alone and that the bad times aren't the end. That, uh, well, one of my favorite sayings is, God's love takes us on journeys we do not wish to go, makes us travel by roads we do not wish to use, to take us to places we never wish to leave. God's love takes us on journeys we do not wish to go, makes us travel by roads we do not wish to use, to take us to places we never wish to leave. The other thing about about worship, I suppose, that that Cranmer did, I think, is is that he, you know, because his his liturgy was so full of scripture, and if it's true that what we believe is shaped hugely by what we worship, and I think that's still true. I mean, you know, you, you ask a lot of people going out of church, what do you remember from the the, the service? The words they will remember are the, are the words of the songs. Mm-hmm. Probably not the words of the sermon necessarily. Not the words of the sermon. <laughs> except for Mike preaches. Except for Mike preaches, of course, they remember every single word. Right? <laughs> they remember the, the jokes. jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can't remember the actual point that the jokes were trying to make. That's <laughs> right. all we go and listen to you for, Mike. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you carry around in your head normally things that you've sung and said in, in, in worship. And unless you make a kind of particular effort to learn scripture as I or memorize verses and so on, you don't tend to remember those. But I can remember songs that I sing. And I guess that's what Canticles and Psalms and, and, and the, the repetition of Scripture was 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 about. Um, 
And so therefore, but I, I do often think, you know, the people who people who do write the songs that we sing, particularly younger Christians sing, you know, it's a huge responsibility to be able to to, to you know to shape the belief of of people and, and to shape the way almost more than the preachers do sometimes. And um, I think that's something that Cranmer had grasped that actually that, that you know he, he actually sort of shaped the belief of a whole you know a couple of centuries of of, of English speaking Christianity. I think you'd have been shocked that what he what he wrote basically was the norm of English worship for 400 mm. years. Mm. But again, what, what's he doing in his liturgy? Not only is he making the spigot that for the Holy Spirit through the Word, not only in the lectionary, but through the whole text is just wonderfully cobbled together scripture because he's an editor piecing things together. But it's also for him a reconversion experience where you go through in the communion service law, gospel, prayer that bringing these two together, repentance and then reunion where you see once again what Christ has done for you in his 1552 service and then after you see what Christ has done for you, you receive and then you give thanks and dedicate yourself that gratitude coming from grace is the only fuel for the Christian life that when I know I'm loved unconditionally and that my salvation is sure then I am astounded and I begin to love and when I begin to love gratitude comes and therefore I will fight sin because um, I cannot think of doing anything else. I may stumble, and I will stumble. And the wonderful thing about Cranmer's End, if it discounts him as a Protestant uh, superman, perhaps that's the best testimony to his theology. Because he taught that it's not about our worthiness, but of a love of God that will not let us go. So that even at the last minute, he was able to hear again the promises that God had chosen him as his son and that nothing can alienate him from that love. And in that confidence, he went to the stake cheerfully. Uh, and yeah. That part of the story does make him somehow someone you can approach in a way that... I, mean, I, I guess you know, because he goes through this, this huge emotional and intellectual turmoil at the end of his life and he kind of goes back on his, his beliefs and signs his recantation and says I, 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 I recant of all I've believed and then he kind of goes back on that recantation and then finally dies in the faith that he, he'd always had in some ways that, that as you say it does you know it, he's not this sort of steely character who just clings on to the truth all the way through he's actually someone you can kind of believe and understand and sympathise because he just struggles hugely with this thing and tries to work out what to do and a that's bit more like us in that way exactly. than mm. the Superman kind of person it's, it's uh, not accurate to say that that kind of indecision characterises him his entire life but who hasn't devoted yourself to something and then you make, you have a crisis and you make bad decisions and it casts doubt on everything you've done what do you then do? Cranmer's theology, because it was a biblical theology of God's love made clear through the death of Christ for his enemies, uh, gave Cranmer hope that that could be redeemed. And therefore, in our world where so many folks don't come from Christian backgrounds, people make life choices, or Christians stumble horribly. 
uh, rather than a pharisaical writing people out. Cramner is the hope that God can work everything, including our mistakes, to his good and his eternal purposes. Kind of interesting because um, I, th- I think it was during the last week, certainly since the last God pod, that uh, John, John Profumo died, the uh, minister who was publicly disgraced and then lying to Parliament and his affair with a prostitute and all that. And there was an American has heard of that. There you go. <laughs> um, and uh, there was a program on, on Newsnight that they were discussing, and one of the questions they asked both a journalist and Jonathan Aitken was. Um, mm. Did he find redemption, uh, or, or d- did he redeem himself? <laughs> was in fact, I think, it's a different, different question. Different, <laughs> different question. Yeah. Um, and uh, Jonathan Aitken's response was, "Well, you've got to differentiate between rehabilitation and redemption. Rehabilitation, you know, he, when he was last seen in public, he was between the Queen and Mrs. Thatcher. That's kind of a form of rehabilitation." <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> But the redemption was a kind of yeah. spiritual matter, sure. which is, you know, we, don't, we earthlings don't know very much about. Um, but, but it's very similar to the Cranmer case in the sense that Cranmer would have said, of course there is redemption offer, you can't redeem yourself, but it's on offer, and it's what you know, God wants to buy us back at every turn. Um, that grace is, is always there. And that it's part of real life, that it isn't available only to people who live good lives already that all of us who have to make ordinary decisions that will have effects that we don't know about that will change our characters in ways we can't contemplate that that, that grace is still there for absolutely everybody in any walk of life we um, are running out of time so we need to um, come to a close but actually thank you so much for being with us you've got to go and catch a a plane to Berlin in about um, an hour's time so you've got to go and get the taxi or the tube or something quite quickly but no it's, it's been great to have you here and so just to have um, just be able to talk about these these um, things and, and some of the things that, that Cranmer has to offer us um, today we have one little last thing which is a um, um, which is our weird religious stuff um, item and I was going to introduce it by a slightly dodgy joke. Am I, do you think I'm allowed a dodgy joke? I, I don't How think dodgy, Graham? <laughs> can we censor it after? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think we expect any other kind. <laughs> <laughs> um, Is it dodgy in quality or dodgy in content? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say it, and, and if it's bad, it's so bad, we can edit it out, right? We, we, could, we could get two different votes. One on content, one on... Okay. Well, the joke, joke is... It's, it's, it's it's things are witty can redeem a whole lot. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of redemption <laughs> after this joke. Actually, this, uh, this chap goes into a restaurant and um, gets given the um, the menu, and, and uh, he calls the, the waitress over to him, and um, he says, uh, "I think I'd, I think I'd like a cookie, please." She says, "What?" He says, um, "I'd just like a like a cookie, please." She says, "It's disgusting. I mean, how do you possibly say something like that?" At which point, the person on the next door table leans over and says, "I think you'll find it's." pronounced quiche (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) well that is a kind of way of introducing our our weird religious stuff bit for today which is a petition um, which is a petition about uh, Christians against quiche which says uh, it appears that every Christian get together and yet it's possibly the most worst dish known to man it's quiche of course and I want to see it banned it's slimy it's cheesy and it's almost certainly of the devil (laughs) 
And uh, now you have a chance to have an impact on world history as the quiche haters of the planet join forces and sign this petition. Church leaders everywhere will be forced to say no to quiche. Let's stop the e-flangelicals. Oh, that's bad, isn't it? Um, and then there's a thing saying, to the Pope, Archbishop of Canterbury, um, or one or the other, I, the undersigned, say quiche has no place in right-thinking Christian society. No longer can I stand back and see quiche appear at every Christian get-together. I urge you to ban this foul dish from our church halls and events for all time. Thank you. It can be the, the, the quiche of death, can't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so would you sign a, a petition against quiche? No, I spent most of my life making quiche. I'm the, one of the people who does exactly like what it? this person objects to. Right? I take quiche to every Christian gathering. <laughs> yeah, I quite like one of the few actually. things I can cook, so I'm not signing this petition. <laughs> exactly. I quite like quiche, actually, especially when it's warm. Cold quiche is a bit dodgy, isn't it? But Yes, I, I tried cooking one the other day and it wasn't a great success, so I think I'll be signing probably just to protect <laughs> no, no, I'll just teach you how to cook it, Mike. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It depends on whose quiche it is. We sign it if it's Mike's quiche, or we don't sign it if it's Okay, well, um, yeah, do you like quiche, Ashley? I would have thought that by signing such a thing that I would go from having a testimony of making a real difference in the world to being a testophony. Thank you for listening. And uh, yeah, if you have any more questions you want to um, send in, the email is godpod at htb.org.uk so, um, And we will actually deal with some next time. <laughs> we might get around to one or two of these questions <laughs> sometime around. So thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Thanks. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Ashley. Yes. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.